Hello and welcome to another episode of Pod of the Gaps, the podcast which seeks to plug the gaps between the church and the culture. My name is Aaron Edwards and I'm joined uh, and is it is kind of garden hideout HQ. Uh, Andy Bannister, uh, how are you doing this evening? I am doing uh, I'm doing very well. Yes, I'm indeed hidden at the bottom of the garden uh, like a gnome. In my little wooden little wooden hut of happiness. Little wooden hut. But you did. And it, last time I saw you there, you had what I described as bowling alley lights, yes. like very blue and dark and neony. Yeah. And today it looks a bit brighter in there. Have you done something? What have you been? No, doing? I, this 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 garden hut thing came with like really funky LED lighting. If I if I if I demonstrate for you, that you know the listeners are going to be going to miss out because they won't see the fact that I can press a button and turn it like that's green. Oh, green. And I go blue. That's the bowling alley one. There's a red button there. <laughs> And um, my amazing. my daughter found out there's even like a, a, a disco button. If I think it's is it that one. Oh, please it's press done. the disco. Yes, Andy it, Bannister, it, the disco. It's just like it's flash. That's there's, quite, a lo- there's a party at Bag End. It's a party right happening now. at Bag End. You make quite, your way down to the Bannister. Residence. Come down and get down with the kids, man. But I could just press that button and go back to something approaching normality. <laughs> that's really cool. Wow, that's very exciting. Yeah. So, Good uh, stuff. Well, that's ex- that's a that's. And it's even more exciting because I'm building shelves in in Bag End. Aaron, and today I feel like I finally arrived as a, as a bloke because yeah. I've got a couple of days off um, um, building some jobs and I started up this morning just using hand tools and did all right. But I was like, this is so slow. So this afternoon I went to I went to the, uh, the I went to the DIY store and I bought man, it's amazing. I bought a circular saw, one of those um, one of those uh, miter saws that, yeah. that comes on a sort of stand and stuff. So so now when I'm you know if I'm chopping wood for a shelf, I go go just go zip, cut it through. Oh, I can get cool. zip through frozen sausages. Zip through small animals, yeah. steel, I don't know, anything. It whatever just you want. Heretics, yeah, I mean, you know, you can just, <laughs> you can just do whatever cut you stuff, want man. Hey, is, that, is that more manly, though? Because you, you're now, you just, you know. It's you a power tool. do any work. Yeah, I it's know, a power, power tool. Tools, power tools kind of are manly, but aren't they less manly? Because the No, they probably are. And to be fair to, to ladies listening, I mean, very, very fair. We've, you know, we've talked about gender on this on this have show we? before. We have, haven't we? And, um. Once or twice, and actually, you're right because I'm very proud of my daughter because I, you know, every time I take her to B and Q, which is a local DIY store, she, I think, probably through me, has come to get excited by power tools, and she's always like, "Dad, can we go through the power tools?" And she'll always, you know, she's learning, "What's that one doing? What's that one doing? You need to get that one." I was like, "No, I don't. I don't need a power sander." Um, I, I, I want a power sander. That's the one power tool that I think is definitely valid because yeah. sanding takes forever. And it's just, it feels like you can never get it accurate. Because I remember being in woodwork at school and you yeah. just you just line it up and then it kind of just perfectly, you know, oh, very it, good. Maybe, it undoes oh, your yeah. shoddy work. So You're a bad sander, influence. I would You're recommend a power sander. Well, yeah. I don't need one yet. I, I should stick to my, my power sort of my power cutting thing. Could you, could you, you could, so if you're not cutting heretics in half, you could sand them down, couldn't you? <laughs> we, so, we, you know, could, we take the edges could, off. Them. We could rub the edge. Well, you could argue that certain, certain heretics have tried to take the edge off Christianity as it, as it is already, isn't that? The, well, indeed, indeed, yeah, that's right. Which which is a wonderful, you know, segue into <laughs> our episode. Of course, waiting, it waiting in the well. wings was that segue. It emerged itself. It reared its ugly head. The segue, and here we are. So so today we are talking about tonight. We are talking about it's an evening episode. It's quite nice doing an evening episode, isn't it? it feels more exciting. We might say things that are just a bit a bit it's crazy. A bit like, yeah, late um, night part of the gap. Edgier. <laughs> exactly. That's right. Late night. Um, Doubt, deconstruction, and and ex-evangelicals, um, <gasps> ex-evangelicals. Which ex-vangelicals. I know you actually said you're you're not too familiar with this term, are you? Ex-evangelicals. Not a very interesting term, isn't it? Um, but it is a it's a it's definitely a phrase that's been making the rounds the last kind of couple of years, especially. And our American listeners will, who are evangelicals will, will be very aware of this. Um, 
or people who actually follow what's going on, unlike Andy, of course. Um, and ex-evangelicals really are those who've sort of decided to step back from or undo some of the things that they've been taught or reared in as evangelicals, basically. It's kind of just a kind of stepping back from mm. walking their steps back from the kind of things that they feel like they've been coerced into or that they have a kind of certain narrative around the things that they believe. And it might be because things have happened to them, which are very difficult and, and often um, very challenging and sometimes abusive, but sometimes it can often be something where someone's jumping on a bandwagon and they're wanting to retrace those steps, wanting to undo things which are actually were good things. And they're kind of chucking a lot away along the way. So it's, it's a huge, huge issue. There's lot, there, there are thousands of evangelicals who would now identify as ex-evangelicals. And even if Brit, over here in Britain, um, we wouldn't necessarily use that term very widely. I mean, you and I, Andy, would know many people who, who we could describe in exactly this category, couldn't we, over the years? Yeah, I mean, I was reflecting on on this that, and it's not just, I mean, there are, there are those out in media, you know, and, and who've been quite more widely known. So, for example, you might mention, you know, in, in, in recent years, you've had perhaps the famous one with Brian McLaren, I think, arguably... You know, is one of the one of the sort of oldest of the current of that kind of crop. Then you have, of course, Rob Rob Bell um, and others. Uh, you, I think you mentioned Joshua Harris. There's mm. uh, there is um, Tony Campolo's uh, son Bart, mm-hmm. um, and then you know, closer to home, more personally, you know, there are, I know there are people I was at theological college uh, with um, who you know I went to a very you know, evangelical, you know, small C conservative theological college, London Bible College, now London School of Theology, and there are people there who you know at the time you know they were a little bit edgy and some of them are still in the same place a little bit edgy but there are some who were like who kept edging it edging it edging it and then finally went whoa over the edge yeah um and it was interesting i you know i met an old friend from there the other the other week who's not in this position at all but wrestling with stuff and you can mm. see oh, it was interesting right you know i can see some people wrestle and sort of work it through other people i think wrestle struggle with the whole process of wrestling and just literally just go skydiving mm. One thing I've reflected on with the whole language of wrestling, because that's something that I remember Rob Bell talking about a lot um, in his first book years and years ago, which was all the rage. I really liked it when it first came out when I was a budding young. Which was his first one, remind remind me? Velvet Velvet Elvis. And and the the subtitle was Repainting the Christian Faith, I think. And it was the idea that, yeah, that you could, there was this sort of version of uh, Christianity which we needed to sort of, pull away the edifice and go back to the kind of uh, the heart of what it is. And in many ways, that was sort of what the emerging church was trying to do. That That's the movement, the emergent or emerging church, mm. which is kind of passe, completely passe now. However, it's like the seeds are are still active in a different form. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm in Lord of the Rings mode at the moment, reading it to my children, I'm always thinking Sauron has returned in other form. Yeah, so well, oh, where are you? We thought we defeated it. We thought we Rabbit defeated trail it, here, but, but where, where, where are you in Lord of the Rings? Because like, I'm reading Fellowship of the Ring and my, my son. I've oh, literally just finished this evening a chapter. So where, we, where, where are you? We're just about to go... Uh, I think towards Shelob's lair, where we're kind Whoa. of with Sam and Frodo. I think they just they're on the skirts of Osgiliath, and they're kind of oh. skirting around. And, and and I think they're yeah they're making their way now closer to uh, I think we're ch- yeah, near the end of the two towers basically. Oh, very good. Yeah, yeah. We just uh, yeah we've just left Lothlorien, so we're just about to okay. head to the Great River and uh, <laughs> and down towards the Falls of Rauros <laughs> and so forth. Well, can we leave you some? We'll leave you some tra- trails. You can pick them up along the way. I'll leave something. I'll, I'll leave me some little. Leave, leave me some crumbs of Elvish <laughs> way bread as a. <laughs> 
as, as you just go. to help you along in the journey. But yeah, that'd be fun. I'm sure you'll be able to do that one. It's you know virtual reality and all of that. Um, so I forget where we were. That that where did that Hobbit trail? Come that was from? a that was a tangent from somewhere. Uh, <laughs> this is the danger with late night. With late night part of the gaps, late night, late, late, late night you were t- we were talking about the whole wrestling, yeah, yeah, wrestling and Rob Bell so, and, and Rob Velvet so Elvis, he, and, and he went to town on on the whole notion of obviously Israel. The name Israel means you know one who struggles with God or wrestles with God, um, and I think I, I kind of in, in lots of debates. I've, I've been in so many debates over the last twenty years, really, with people on this issue, and even as someone who thought through very deeply. The, the questions that these people were asking at the time, which were really important questions um, about what is it that we've inherited from the, the people who preached the gospel to us, the people who gave us a framework for understanding the Christian faith. How can we critique that? What, what of that might not have been entirely mm. biblical or entirely gospel all the way down? How much of it was cultural? How much of it um, was somebody's vision or someone's idea that, that actually was presented to us as though it was you know the foundations of the faith but actually maybe it wasn't that's the kind of questions they're asking because they're seeing the fruit of some of those ideas uh, and, and using you know showing us bad examples of where some of those ideas worked out and going well maybe the things you thought were true or the things you thought you believed weren't quite as as true as you thought that kind of thing um, and so this idea of struggling and wrestling with that is like I, I want to argue back with god argue back with the bible and you, you see you know you kind of see elements of that in the psalms you can see psalms of lament were kind of calling back at god god why are you doing this or job hmm. asking questions of god but at the same time um the problem is now and i've started to realize people are starting to think that they've won that wrestle so it's one good one thing kind of say oh i'm struggling i'm struggling with god i'm wrestling with god but yes. you don't get to win okay sorry jacob didn't no, actually jacob win. didn't get a win so there was a there was this little god did a little move at the end didn't he? he got left with a limp for a reason because actually there's yeah. something god imprints himself on you and there's you're not supposed to beat god in a wrestle and i think these a lot of these ex-evangelicals and i, and I don't I say I don't mean to typecast them, but I guess I do. So I, it's inevitable. So if you're an ex-evangelical listening to this and you feel like I've pigeonholed you, I have because I meant to. Because I, I keep hearing exactly the same story. So if, if you want to surprise me and have a different story that doesn't sound exactly mm. like everyone else's with exactly the same questions, I'm all ears. But I've heard hundreds of them and they seem very similar. So anyway, that's the kind of issue that I have, that there's a sense of winning, yes. trying to almost put, assert yourself above God by winning, beating him in, in that wrestling match and then walking away. Yeah. Well, as the whole wrestling thing as well is interesting because I, th- I, I think it is. I'm still happy that it's helpful language because I think it is biblical that metaphor. As you say, I think it's if you sort of sit out and think, okay, this is an equal wrestling match. Because your point about the Psalms is interesting. I mean, you're right. The Psalms, you know, really do raise questions and the, the whole kind of you know, God, where are you? Why have allowed that to happen? That's mm-hmm. there throughout them. Look at this Job as well. Actually, I'm just yeah. in my morning devotions. Mm-hmm. You know, part of my I'm reading the Bible in, in a year at the moment, and uh, you know, I'm in that to go through Job and you're like I mean that's interesting right because Job is is allowed God allows him to really push it with some of the questions he throws and then of course at the end when God steps in there's that great revelation of who God is you know there's a sort of like okay you've had your fun now let me show you actually what's going on but what's interesting is those books like Job and the Psalms you know the wisdom literature they ask their questions from a place of certainty and a place of confidence and I think it's okay that's when it's okay to ask questions when you know where your center is I remember an old when I was back at LST one of my Real theological heroes, a, a, a chap called Peter Hicks, who was who taught pastoral theology. There was a fantastic right. philosopher and also mm-hmm. my pastor, and uh, I dedicated my first book to, to Peter because he died rather young a few years ago. Peter once said something I remember where he said, "You know, be careful if you stake the 
the center of your theology, you know, in 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 the center, as it were, keep it in the center. Then you do, as it were, you know, the metaphor. You can tie a tether to that and put that around yourself, and you go exploring, and it's okay. You're, you're safe because you're you're tied into the center. If you make the center right up by the darn cliff edge, yeah. Then and you, t- it doesn't matter if you tie yourself into that and you go wandering off. You're still going to go splat mm. over the edge. So mm. don't be afraid of asking the questions. He mm. said, but you've got to be certain in yeah. who God is, who Christ yeah. is. And one of the things I loved about LST was that they, they made us read all the liberal stuff. So I, I was kind of amusing, vaguely amusing, when I come across ex-evangelical types. Like, oh, yeah, I've, uh, I, I, I lost my faith or I've gone all wobbly because I read Brueggemann or, uh, you know, Bultman or Bannister, uh, no. uh, Edwards, you know, I, because, <laughs> because I read whatever it is I've read. And I sometimes, I sometimes resist the urge to go, but where have you been? You know, conservative evangelical scholarship, good scholarship, and, and good education has not ignored those things. At LST, I really value they made us read those things. Hmm. But, you know, occasionally I think people come across that stuff and go, oh, shoot, there's like, is Bart Ehrman. And it's yeah. like, yeah, there is Bart Ehrman, and we can't not read him. Hmm. Um, but conversely, someone told me a lovely story the other day, and I forget which, uh, I forget which seminary it, it was. It was somewhere in Scotland um, where... Um, where there's the, the, the a conservative, uh, you know, evangelical um, seminary yeah. fairly close to, uh, you know, new, university department is quite liberal. But you'll often get students from the more liberal one knocking on the door of the conservative one, going, "Can we come and use your library? Because in our <laughs> yeah. library up the road, we've got all the liberal stuff, yeah, yeah. but we don't have the other viewpoint." Yeah. <laughs> to which the evangelicals yeah. go, "Oh, come on in, we've got yeah. it all." Yeah. And actually, the story that to me that, that demonstrates that most beautifully, you know, the best theological library in the UK. Uh, is arguably Tyndale House mm. in Cambridge. It's astonishingly good New Testament library. Mm. Brilliant. Um, Peter Williams, mm. friend of mine, you know, heads it up there. And they have everything. There is nothing, no matter how wacky, that's not there. And there's nothing, right. no matter how conservative and dusty, that isn't there. Because their their view is we need to read everything. If we're going to be evangelicals who are taken seriously... Um, so I struggle sometimes. I think, yeah, when when people sort of let on, well, you know, I I, I wrestled and got into trouble. I, I wonder how you did the wrestling, and or mm. if I read this and it threw me off the path. Mm. Well, what were you what were you not reading at the same time? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, there's a few things in there, aren't there? One thing. Let me come back to the library thing. If I forget, if I go down another hobbit hole, just say library again, because there's a, a couple of things to say on that. But I think um, on the point of um, whether they whether they actually feel like they've been brought... There are some people who will be listening to this go, well, that's not my experience. <clears throat> so I want to almost put mm. an olive branch out and say, well, I do understand why some people get to that point. And then there's some forms of conservative um, evangelicalism, which um, in, certainly in other generations, I just think conservative evangelicalism in this country at least is, is you know, dying a death in many ways. Um, <clears throat> it, because it's not, it, it's not really able to sort of express itself fully or the, or the thing that the ways that we're able, we're, we're talking about it or the bad versions of it, they don't really exist anymore. So we invent these sort of straw men uh, to say, oh, these, these terrible, the worst thing you could, you could be would be this kind of overly conservative person who's always talking about doctrine in such a way that has no compassion for people or something like that. And we sort of posture uh, trying not to be that guy who doesn't really exist anymore. It's kind of fictional, I think for the most part. And even if you know some, a few you, you hardly meet many like that uh, today and so that that's one thing to know but the other thing is there are people obviously especially in the us is such a, a broad range isn't it of, of different kinds of evangelicalism and 
some of the experiences people will have will be, you know, more fundamentalist in the sense that they they were shut mm-hmm. off. Yes. It was deemed necessary for them to not engage with certain things. Now, on one level, that can be bad because it means that when they do start asking questions or when they do open mm-hmm. out, it feels like, oh my gosh, there's this newfound land. You know, I've got, I don't, I don't, I don't know if any of them listen to this podcast, but a lot of my PhD colleagues, when I was studying my PhD, were American evangelicals. I don't know if they'd call themselves ex-evangelicals, but they probably were. They probably would say they're the post-evangelical would be another way of saying it. Um, and I, we used to just debate all the time Mm. and they didn't really understand why someone like myself was arguing the things i was arguing for in this country because this to them this country was like the newfound land america's supposed to be the newfound land britain would become the newfound land because it was a place where you could spread your wings a bit more um and ask these kind of questions in this cool wonderful traditional place and yet um and and i would sort of say look do you do you think the church over here is all that thriving that the theology that you think is so great, uh, that the kind of questions you feel like you need to ask, uh, do we are we showing good fruit over here in, in our church? You know, when you're broadly looking at the state of the, of the church in England, not the Church of England, church in England or the church in Britain at, at large, was it, it's clearly not there, is it? It's not. It's not like you're saying that you can tell a tree by its fruit. Our, mm. our tree doesn't look very healthy when you look at it compared to the whole nation. Of course, there's wonderful pockets of of the church mm. and resistance and and flourishing in loads of places. Of course. But nonetheless, broadly speaking, um, the church is not in, in the, the healthiest place numerically or even in terms of the depth of discipleship. So I think mm. w- I, w- I was just saying, look, you think that this is great because now you can ask questions that you couldn't ask before. And that's sad because it probably means that they genuinely couldn't and they might mm. have been brought up with the kind of scaffolding or stabilizers, which meant that if you ask those questions or if you read that book, you're probably a liberal or on the way to being a liberal. So I think I agree with you that Mm. there needs to be that openness to saying look we're not scared of of these other things at the same time though the other caveat would be paul does say not to read certain people you know i've I've mentioned this many times Mm. in the pastoral epistles himenaeus philetus etc alexander the coppersmith there are there are pastorally there's reasons not everyone is called to read all those books in tyndale house and for some people they would be harmful and i even think a lot of the emerging church stuff i think was actually harmful toxic because it had so much kind of seeming good truth about it so much zest and passion for jesus in it and stuff about reaching culture which was really exciting and they hadn't seen that done before in that kind of way you know rob bell's mm. numa videos were the best kind of art any christian had kind of produced video art at the time and um, let alone sort of didactic art so it was really um, that that can sort of bamboozle people in such a way that they then go oh gosh and they swallow whole stuff that's yes. actually bad for them so we we have to have a balance between look you shouldn't actually go near these guys because they're not good but at the same time, we ask the questions, talk about it, and maybe we can scaffold you up to to maybe be able to read them. So if you want yes. to think deeper, go and let go and study exactly. theology. Yeah, no, I think that's very helpful. Actually, an analogy I, th- I years ago I used to use was you know, you know if you want to take up um you want to take up some sport. I mean, obviously it's dated now because he's no he's no longer around. But if you want to take up boxing, you know, probably going into the ring with you know Mike Tyson or um, Muhammad Ali as your first bout, probably a bit of a disaster. You probably are going to get whooped. Um, but actually in time you can, you can work up or actually perhaps another analogy might be, you know, you and I both have, have, uh, have kids, not, not together. I hasten to add, we're not, it's not that kind of podcast. It's not that kind of relationship and it's not that kind of theology. <laughs> can I just um, say that if we ever did another podcast, it's not that kind of podcast. It would be a great, it would title. be a great title. Yeah, yeah. Um, kind of, well, do you remember actually an early, without going back into that horrific <laughs> name thing, 
there was for a while the working title for this wasn't it was going to be what was going to be what kind of podcast yes that's right. people would say to you you'd say to people you've got a podcast and they'd say what kind of podcast and go, well, exactly that's it. um yeah, yeah. where i was going with this is with kids right and to go you know yeah. i'm i'm really excited that you know we had a bit of a, a, a milestone this week that my son beat me at this strategy kind of game called wow. uh, splendor which is a kind of sort of card trading kind of kind of game mm. and you know, I've always been very clear with the kids of going. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna pretend yeah. to to lose. You know, if we yeah. if you want a game that you can win out, well, let's play something like Tiddlywinks or something that's random. Yeah. But you know, as they've got in strategy games, and this less last night, Christopher didn't just beat me; he whooped me. Did he? And what was great was his face when he realised he'd he'd whooped me because I I yeah. missed I made a mistake and he got it. I was like, yeah, because we've coached him and trained him and encouraged mm-hmm. him when he first set out. You know, when we first started playing games, it wouldn't have been appropriate to play that game. Yeah. He wasn't ready. And then yeah. it was a bit of a, you know, I, I would kind of win. Yeah. But in, in time. And I think yeah. the same is true. You're absolutely right, theologically, of going, yeah, don't go and don't go and start, you know, wrestling with some of the big heavyweights until you're That's until good, you're yeah. ready. Because the yeah. danger is you do think you end up walking away, go, Oh gosh, they're right. That's simply so because you don't you don't yeah. have the answer. What well, I, I would I, say I, though, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go for no, it. I was just gonna I'm just gonna jump in on your uh thing with, with Christopher's victory you know obviously I'm sure there were you know 780 trophies of, of Andy Bannister on the on the mantelpiece that he can now go I can have one of these trophies but um I, I remember vividly the time when I first beat my dad in football in kind of yes. what we call over here Wembley where it's just kind of you know like one on one on one with one goalkeeper yeah. and I think I don't know if I was just one on yeah me trying to score against him and there's some other goalkeeper and I beat him 3-2. I remember where I was and how old I was. Amazing, eh? And it was because I'd lost so many times. And actually, there was something of the mm. training. And I do think if, you know, in terms of Jacob's wrestling with God, there is something of the kind of, God does want to grow us and stretch us. So I think God does like to wrestle yes. with us in some way and challenge us and test us. That's what he's doing with Job, I think, in many ways. Um, but he knows what's good for us and he knows what's bad for us. So there's a sense of you're in safe hands. You're in safe yeah. hands when you're wrestling with God because you know that he's your father. He's always your father. He's always going to win that wrestle. Unlike in your case, of course, there's a, there's an over, there's a changing of the guard, clearly, in the Bannister's house. But that, there is, exactly, to go. I feel right. the, the Rubicon yeah. was, was crossed. But I, said, I think the other thing I was going to say on this is, as, as well, that around that, a caveat to the caveat to the caveat, mm. is one thing I, I do worry about at times is that, you know, to what extent evangelical churches in the UK are actually taking the effort to really equip people beyond just mm. the shallow. Mm. I mean, some are. You know, I was yeah. up in a church in Aberdeen kind of yesterday, which is great, and they've got a theology online theology program they've, they've built for the, you know, lots of the church go through it, and they've now turned it online and co- collaborated with others. Mm. I was like, that is phenomenal. But I also know churches where, yeah, I think people don't really go go deep. Mm. And then when a challenge comes, you do get tossed around by every wind and wave yeah. of doctrine. I'm really very careful here not to come across as superior or, you know, to, to making faith purely intellectual because it's a whole range of things. Yeah. But, you know, I, I still come back and you'd expect me to as a as an apologist, I guess. First Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. And one of the things I, I love about the early church period, you know, these were men and women who... You know, they were willing to die for their faith. So that was incredibly compelling. Uh, they lived sacrificially. They helped mm. the poor, not just their own, but others. They hung around when, when everyone else cleared out because of plague and rescued people. They they had a radical welcome. So, you know, slaves and women and everyone who was, you know, the, the lowest in that society, mm. there was no barriers. Mm. But they also knew their theology. I mean, the fact yeah. that Paul can write, you know, something like Romans to a church that he's never been to, knowing 
that they can engage at that level. You know, Romans, yeah. we think of it as, gosh, it's quite complex theology. Yeah. He wrote that to ordinary Christians. Yeah. And I'm sure, yeah, you know, as I was writing the New Testament, you know, Paul does in some of his letters raise some quite tough theology that's recognized by some yeah. of the other apostles. But, yeah. but that was taken as a given. And I do wonder whether we need to raise our game. One thing, it's interesting you mentioned the US, one thing I really noticed when I came back from Canada six years out there was loads of churches out there have adult Sunday schools on a Sunday. Yeah. They, they train their people theologically. And I, I haven't come across that here. And I think that's a shame because historically, yeah. you know, British evangelicalism was really strong and really rigorous yeah. and really robust. Yeah. But something something happened. We stopped we stopped passing this stuff on. Yeah, there used to be, I mean, Martin Lloyd-Jones at Westminster Chapel would do it on Friday nights, would be the kind of expositions, but were Q&A based. So people could ask all their questions with Lloyd-Jones mm. just, you know, over years going through Romans. That eventually became his famous Romans commentaries. And a Sunday would be, I mean, I presume this, he probably ended up kind of preaching at both, but they were seen as separate things. One was a teaching moment and one was a preaching moment where you're kind of not supposed to ask questions. You're kind of receiving the word of God proclaimed. And on the, the Friday night was be different. Sometimes some churches would do it on a Sunday afternoon for that adult uh, Sunday school. But And it is that opportunity to ask those questions and be out in the open rather than dwell on them and, and then allow them to fester. And then the, what I find the, the biggest danger, I think, is not always, it, it, it can even catch people out who are educated. So education isn't the solution. It's not like purely just, oh, just if you just read loads, then you'll be fine. Because I think Satan's very crafty and very clever. And we'll find ways yes. of trying to pull the rug away so that all the things you have learned are, are built upon something. He can make it feel seem like to some people. I, I've spoken to them and I kind of think mm. they feel like they're brainwashed. The irony is they think that I'm brainwashed or you're brainwashed because you still believe in the authority of scripture. And they've had it kind of, they've had the, the rug pulled away from them and you can't convince them otherwise because they, they've almost been completely sort of glazed over. They've read this particular book. That's made them think differently. In fact, this one I was in a debate recently. I keep having people recommend a book called Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Demetz, an American female mm. scholar who's one of many female authors at the moment who are kind of having a go at kind of toxic masculinity and evangelicalism in the US. And I have, I've only read the, I know, a, a bit of the book and I, I probably need to read the whole thing, but I can see, I can't see it changing from what I've started to read anyway. It inevitably, and it presents this kind of very neat narrative which you know ironically is having a go at the neat narratives that people previously given mm. these stereotypes of things and saying the reason evangelicals voted for trump for example or many did in that they got trump uh, into the american presidency was because of this idea of a certain kind of masculinity whatever and so she writes this book that it's, it's all kind of cultural so anyone then who's brought up thinking god cares about things like gender is going to be oh my gosh i was lied to um, because Christian Demetz told me in this book, and I keep being in debates, and people go, oh, have you read this book? Have you read this book? And I kind of think, have you read, like, God's book lately? Like, there's another book you could read as well, you know? And, and it's just amazing how it's, it, it just replaces a kind of, it's almost like another version of fundamentalism. I've, I've got my new mm. text, my new proposition. You can't ask any questions about it. This just is the case. It's like, is it? Is it definitely the case? Yeah, you're not allowed to like these people. You're like, you have to like these yes. people now. That's, and you have to hate these people. It's very, very straightforward. It's kind of very, very yeah. ironic, really. It is. And the other phenomenon that, go, that goes on that's related to that, and, um, and uh, it was interesting. I noticed the other day, I was in an online um, debate the other day with one of these sort of folks. I'm being very careful saying one of these folks because they're, you know, they're, 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 they're people that I, you know, I, 
in many cases love love dearly because you, you think you just want them just to rediscover yeah, the joy of trusting in Christ. About that, absolutely, yeah. But the way that yeah, as you say, the way that an, an author will get thrown out, like oh, you need to read, you know, if you've read, you know, yeah. X, whoever yeah. X is, yeah. Um, and to go, you know, I always it's always tough on social media because not enough space. But, you know, when that turns up one-to-one, I learned this actually with the new atheism. People would say, oh, if you read Dawkins, or, you know, I've read Dawkins, you can never convince me. And and I always found it helpful to just ask the follow-up questions. Like, oh, okay, it's very interesting. Which um which of his arguments persuaded you in particular? What did you find helpful? What did you disagree with? And the same with this kind of stuff. When someone says, oh, you know, I've read, you know, uh, you know Brueggemann or something. Yeah. I don't want to pick on him because there's some good stuff in there as well. But you always want to go... And some bad stuff. And some bad stuff. I, I did say as well. <laughs> no, just say as well. But the point is, you want to go. You can't just throw a name out. I mean, yeah, that, yeah, that, exactly. that is yeah. that's like academic yeah. fundamentalism yeah, of going. Exactly. No author is entirely yeah. right. Well, obviously you are, but to yeah, go, yeah, you're, sure. you're not. You're not yeah. that widely read. Um, yeah. So I think it's that piece. And the other thing that serves me slightly here is the sort of baby and bathwater issue yes. going on. Because as you say, without going into all the ins and outs, there's the toxic masculinity thing of going. Look, yeah, it's perfectly okay to go. The church has some issues around. Around, around masculinity and, and certain leadership roles. I mean, we might, you know, the famous example par excellence in recent years would be, you know, Mark Driscoll and Mars and Mars Hill and that podcast, mm-hmm. The Rise and Fall of Mars yeah. Hill, many people listen to. Okay, look, even if you take it all as a given, and to go, I'm always a believer in the right of reply, but let's take it all as a given. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, what you've seen there is an example of a leader who hasn't lived up to the example of Christ. Christ, incidentally, is an example by which we're critiquing them by yeah. uh, and going, okay, so what that tells us is that Christians sometimes go wrong. Well, hello, we've known that since the since the very, very, very beginning. I mean, we have examples of that in the, in the New Testament of people going off on, you know, strange mm-hmm. directions, whether it's Ananias and Sapphira, you know, trying to play, yeah. you know, personal folk grain and reputation. Um, you know, what's his, my, my brain has gone, it's late at night. You know, the guy who comes to the apostles giving them money to, to, to Simon teach. Simon the magician. Thank you, yeah. Simon. I was getting there. Simon, who, who comes along and, and so on and, mm-hmm. and so forth. And there was various people, as you mentioned, a few warned about the New Testament. Where Paul says, you know, be careful about, you know, like Alexander, metal worker and, mm-hmm. and, and so on. Others. So go, it's not news or it shouldn't be news, but sometimes things mm-hmm. things go things go wrong. I wish it weren't the case. But then we, we come back to the centre and one of the, mm-hmm. One of my favourite books, in, well, favourite books. One of the really helpful books in, in recent years on this, just because it's so readable. Actually, is um, one of my books. You know, is it? No, not one of yours. I'm afraid. John Dixon's Bullies and Saints, because oh, that book does a really, just a really good job. I think of just walking through and going, yeah, there've been some Egypts, but there've been some amazing people who followed Christ as well. But how do we decide? Do we just pick the ones we like, or do we actually use Christ as the criterion and going good leadership is that which measures? Up to Christ, and Christ, of course, it is who says, "Not one jot or tittle of the law will be replaced." Christ had an incredibly high view mm. of the old of the Old Testament, you know, and and, and scripture and truth, mm. and and I think the other thing as well. I keep saying other things. The other issue here I've noticed actually, Aaron, is that sometimes people who go a bit wobbly around the edges is often around the social justice yeah. stuff, and yeah. yes, you know. We would need to admit that sometimes some parts of the evangelical church need to, needed to be reminded that Jesus had a high view of the poor, yeah. and that you know there is an outworking of the, of, of the gospel. But uh, the point with this at the same time is going. You look at Jesus. Jesus did not compromise morally, but he didn't ignore social justice. He held the two mm. things together. Mm. To perfectly, I mean the class, yeah. you know, there's many examples, but the, the woman caught in adultery is perhaps you know the, mm. one of the famous yeah. 
kind of ones. He didn't go, oh, it's okay. You know, there's no such thing as taboos. Don't worry. He was like, no, do not go and sin no more. Mm. But he also deals with the religious establishment who are, you know, yeah. playing power games and, and oppressing people who haven't got power, who are genuine victims. And, but he doesn't do it by throwing truth out. Yeah, yeah. And I and it, what sounds me about some of the ex-evangelicals I come across is sense of, oh, we can't have yeah. truth yeah. and social justice. So we, we've mentioned, you know, Steve Chalk many times on this podcast. It breaks my heart because I, I worked with, with Steve's organization and stuff when, when I was much younger. And those two things seem to be held together, but they've now been ripped apart. Mm-hmm. And I actually think you lose the power of social justice, yeah. actually, because social justice, justice is not grounded in something also deals with the, with the heart issues yeah. as well as the circumstance issues, I think just doesn't work. Exactly right. It's, it's interesting. I, I, just this mo- just this morning, I was actually doing a lecture for our MA group on um, we had a week on biblical theology and mission, and I was doing Jeremiah today, which is fun. Um, and the thing with Jeremiah is he one of the things he spends most of the time doing in the lead up to the Babylonian exile is calling out the false prophets, those who would prophesy peace, peace when there's no peace, or who would say, we're in the temple, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, whilst they're going on doing things, sinning, committing adultery, as he names various sins. Um, And yet some of those are that you're abusing the poor and that Mm. you're actually oppressing people, the kind of things that people on the political left should care about and often do care about. But Jeremiah is an interesting one, and many of the prophets are like that. You can tell a true prophet because they're willing to say whatever needs to be said that is true at the time, not what meets their political agenda or what not what their audience want to hear. And Jeremiah's audience certainly didn't want to hear what he said. That's why he got chucked down a well and uh, was not very well received as a prophet. But so often he's saying... It's a good pun there. Not very well received. <laughs> well, he was, he was actually well received. He was the very well received. Literally exactly. well received. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Um, and so <clears throat> I think he's one of the things he's saying is these people speaking, they say, declares the Lord, declares the Lord. They're speaking in the name of the Lord. But he's saying, God, God is saying through Jeremiah, I didn't send them. I did not send them. And I, I was, and one of the people I was actually quoting, we mentioned Brueggemann. I did quote Brueggemann, who's written mm. a really interesting books on on prophecy, loads of really good wisdom mm. in them. He's an Old Testament scholar, but he's very leftward theologically. Um, but then he's, the things that he thinks that the prophets would be saying, you know, when he says, oh, this is what the prophets would be saying today, yes. they're always politically left issues, always stuff like the problem is the white, male, straight, dominated society we live in. The problem is big banks. The problem is this. And I thought, by all means, critique big banks, critique issues that would uh, anger the right. But at the same time, I don't want to. Why, ha- why haven't you mentioned abortion? Why haven't you mentioned homosexuality? Which I'm pretty sure Jeremiah would have yeah, a, a little yeah. issue with. I don't think Jeremiah in the room is going, Oh, do you know what, Walter? I totally agree with everything you're saying. Those big banks are really, really terrible. Um, and also, anything else you want to say, Jeremiah? Is there anything else on that you might want to mention? Is no, nothing at all. I just, I'm totally 100 percent with with Walter Brueggemann and with his leftward friends. So equally, I think it's the same problem on the right. If you had someone who thought, "Oh yes, Jeremiah or any prophet, if they're here today, they, they'd be calling out um, only the issues on the left." There are clearly problems, and, and American politics yes. is, is replete with this problem of who do you vote for? Because Republicans and Democrats are both bad in different ways, but exactly. some issues might be swingers that actually that, that are so significant and that they make you want to vote for someone even though if you don't really like them because the issue is so significant and that, that causes all sorts of ruptures um, when kind of politics comes involved so part of that narrative yes. seeing examples of how evangelicalism for example has been co-opted by different ideologies left or right is what leads to some of this 
ex-evangelicalism. And another American example, actually, of that would be a guy I mentioned briefly earlier, Joshua Harris. Yes. Who I think is part of the whole problem, part of the you know the, the whole narrative of kind of seeing leaders fail. Maybe people like Driscoll, but again, I, I've got a lot more time for Driscoll than many have, and, and I think the. The, that podcast, Rise of All of Myself, did a lot of damage. And people listen to it and go, oh, maybe my church is like this. Maybe anyone wielding any kind of authority is, is a megalomaniac or something. So I think there's issues there. Yeah. But it's part of the whole story. So Joshua Harris is fascinating. He had a kind of rethink on purity culture, which was this kind of movement in the States, hmm. uh, what would be 90s maybe, maybe stretched back before then, wrote those kind of famous books, you know, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, um, that kind of caused evangelical christians of a certain era to go right we're going to aim for purity and we're not going to kind of go and sleep around we're not going to give in to some sort of sexual um lust and, and all these other ways a- and later on he realized oh, that was really bad actually because it meant that people felt bound up and they felt kind of judged and they felt like god doesn't want them if they mess up that kind of thing and so he renounced those books publicly and apologized for them it's funny that not that long after that he ends up getting divorced because he's had problems mm-hmm. in his marriage. You kind of end up thinking, right, okay, there's personal Same. issues here which are influencing. You're going, oh, purity culture is really bad. Oh, is it interesting that you kind of got some other thing going on here and, and other issues and, you're, and you're, you're very quickly afterwards, your marriage falls apart. And then um, he gives up his faith like within yeah. months of this happening, maybe even weeks, I think it was. He announces he's completely apostate. And I was like, wow, that, that happened fast. And this was a kind of real mm. significant leader who'd shot to prominence mm. at a young age, had led a significant church, stepped down from that, and then stepped down from his yeah. marriage, then stepped down from his faith. And then within, within again, shockingly a fast amount of time, he set up this course called a deconstruction course for other Christians. I think it was called um, something like Reframing Your Story or something like that. Yeah, Reframe Your Story. So for $275, you could hear the wisdom of joshua harris someone who has you know made a shipwreck of many things and now you can pay him in order to he did offer a kind of a free version of the course i hear for people who were sort of um abused in some way or could prove they're abused i don't know what you had to do to prove that but then so so quickly was everyone angered about this and said this was outrageous that you're doing this and um, that he had kind of had to retrace the steps and go okay i won't do it but it's just interesting that yes. immediately there's this thought i want to i want to evangelize deconstruction I want to evangelize the loss of faith and doubt because yeah. that's really important. So it's fascinating. Well, I think there's a couple of things going on there, aren't there? One of the, one is that I think sometimes I think when people tread this path, there can be a deep insecurity. And so you almost want to validate your decision by, by having other people come along with you. You know, it's a very lonely path, trying to be an ex-evangelical ex, ex path. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, have I made a mistake? I've done something wrong. So, you know, the old idea of misery loves, loves company. Is, uh, is interesting. I think there can be that. For others, it can be a self-righteous piece. And look, be very careful here to go, God, I mean, evangelicals, we can be guilty of self-righteousness, mm. of going, going, we got our theology all sorted and polished yeah. and shiny, isn't it wonderful? Look at us. Mm. But that's another issue. But in this mm. can be a sort of sense of, well, I'm superior. There's almost actually a Gnosticism there, actually. Of going, well, I discovered the inner the inner truth and you know you and i were both debating with somebody on facebook <laughs> the other week and um it, i think it very quickly got into that kind of territory mm. but what i find fascinating two things i find fascinating though aaron one is that sometimes actually it takes those outside the church to call it out for the nonsense that it is so i shared with you on um on a message last last week actually that i was uh funny enough you know after a little debate online with our mutual friend um I was uh, reading a, a book by a friend of mine called Ed Shaw, 
who's a same-sex attractive Christian but living a biblically faithful life. And Ed's book, The Plausibility Problem, is a really, really helpful read. But in there, he, he's great on finding quotes. He found a quote from an atheist journalist, atheist secular journalist called uh, Matthew Paris, who's also gay himself, um, talking about this tendency that you know the, the, the Anglican Church have to keep revisiting sexuality and trying to change things. And Matthew, who is gay and an atheist, just sort of castigates this as total rubbish. He says, can, they almost, can these Anglicans honestly say that they would have drawn from Christ's teaching the same lessons of sexual tolerance in 1000 AD or 1590 or indeed 1950? Surely not, for almost no such voices were heard. So in which case then, what does this reform amount to? Like changes to the church teaching on divorce or Sunday observance, the new tolerance gains its force within the Anglican communion from a fear of being isolated from changing public morals. But that is that no is that that's no reason to change anything. And I won't read the rest. He just goes on to say, look, if you believe, if what you believe is true, you need to stick to it. If it's false, throw it out. But don't go just changing it just because society is shifting around you. But then the other thing I was going to throw in um, quickly is about sort of we got ten minutes to go, and it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on this one. I'm also struck by how within some of these theological movements there is a, not a willingness to think through. The consequences, you know, people embrace positions, but because they're often not actually theological thinkers, one of the things yeah. that good theology teaches you is to go, okay, if I hold position X, then yeah. logically I have to hold position Y, and then logically Z follows. You can't just hold a view and then and then not follow through mm. on the consequences. And a good example of that in this dialogue debate we're having online the other the other week is, you know, this idea that the person we were talking with kind of threw out that, you know, he basically, you know, rejected the, the atonement. He'd rejected any, any sense of God as a God of wrath or, that, mm. you know, God might be God of judgment. You know, sin is gone. There was a reference yeah. there aren't any taboos anymore. Yeah. Um, and, and so, of course, that leads, begs the question, what's the, what's the cross for? And he was playing, you know, he sort of introduced into the dialogue, didn't he, this idea. Well, it's just, uh, you know, God is with the victim. Mm. And, uh, and so, you know, God is sort of somehow... With us as victims in in Jesus, and you look at that for a moment and go, yeah, but hang on a minute, that means it doesn't need to be Jesus. Mm. Um, if all you need is someone to be a victim, then well, of course George Floyd was a mm. was a was was a was a victim, you know, um, and Frank was a was a victim. The list goes on. History is full of victims. So why on earth did God need to come in Jesus? Um, it also reminds me similarly when Steve Chalk you know, brought out the lost message of of Jesus, which again, you know, throughout the the traditional view of the atonement and penal substitution. You know, Steve had this ridiculous line in there about, you know, the idea that God was punishing Christ for our sins on the cross is cosmic child abuse. Yeah. Um, you know, Steve ends up in a similar sticky patch, really, going, well, therefore, what is the cross? And I think yeah. Steve back then was sort of using language where it's sort of God's demonstration of, of, of love for us in some way. Yeah. And to go, well, hang on a minute. If God loves us, couldn't he just send flowers? I mean, to go, <laughs> if, if I... If I, next Valentine's Day, you know, go and jump off a motorway bridge and the ambassador yeah. note going, I want to show you how much I loved you, so I thought I'd kill myself. Yeah. Of going, it's actually just nuts. That's not a demonstration yeah. of love. Mm-hmm. So if all God wanted to do was demonstrate love for us, there were a thousand and one ways mm. of doing it. Yeah. Isn't the whole point about the cross? It was the only way. Romans 5, mm. verse 8, God demonstrates his love for us in this while we we're still sinners. Yeah. Christ died for us. And it, I find it tragic that people shift their views theologically on things, mm. but then don't follow through, don't see where it leads to. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I mentioned in a previous episode, I'll hand back to you with on this, yeah, yeah, a no, wonderful, no. Book of, wonderful book a few years ago called The Cruelty of Heresy. Um, yeah. I'll put a reference in the footnotes, which explores this for Christological heresies. If you 
you know, that Arianism that has, you know, Jesus is really isn't, it really isn't God in any meaningful kind of sense. Well, that has a massive pastoral implication because it means we haven't therefore been reconciled yeah. to God because Jesus can't do that. And the author, whose name temporarily escapes me in that book, makes the point heresy is always inherently cruel mm. because there's always a pastoral impact that's often, that's often mm. missed to some of these positions. Which again is very ironic, isn't it? Because it's often painted in such a way that the conservative voice, I don't mean conservative culturally, like, like we're mm. not really interested in just conserving anything, but the conservative is a, is a label that means something purely just because you're remaining steadfast or faithful to what you've received in the way that Paul says to Timothy, you know, follow the pattern of sound words, he tells him in, in 2 Timothy, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So there's, uh, you know, what you've heard from me, he says, you know, in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who'll be able to teach others also. So there's a sense of, 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 what you've received from the apostolic testimony, which really does just mean now for us, you know, we haven't got quick connection with Paul, but we've got connection with the deposit that Paul has left and others have left with apostolic authority. So we have uh, in scripture, the authority of scripture is us receiving that and then not turning away from it, not doing what the person wants to build their house on the sand is doing. I've referenced that parable quite a lot. And I think it's quite important for our time and, and for these sort of debates about evangelicalism, because I think many people are have moved away from the rock, which is harder to build your house on, and they've gone to the sand where the where the foundations are malleable and easier. Uh, even though they'll claim all the way along that what they're doing is very brave and courageous, and what they're doing is very very difficult and challenging, because they've had to step outside and be judged by their religious community. And I don't deny that that will have been difficult for many people, but they're running into the arms, into the rainbow-clad arms of the world. Um, who are accepting them mm. with open arms? They've got they've got lots of friends in the world, and 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 there'll be lots of people who are willing to celebrate that. Mm. The prodigal son had many people who was you know, willing to celebrate with him until he found himself utterly alone, and um, by what by the kind of implications of his actions. So exactly what you say, Andy, that it's the logical steps of going. If you believe this, this has to follow. This has to fall, and this has to fall. And you know, the Joshua Harris story I mentioned, mm. all the dominoes fell pretty quickly. Yeah. Like. You know that, that and, I, and I've I've known people myself, even my in, in, I've sort of been involved in ministry with, whose dominoes fell unbelievably fast. They're, they're really clever, really bright, really passionate about Jesus, really passionate about evangelism. In fact, the person we were talking about the other uh, online the other day, mm. we were they were they were very passionate evangelism too, and very very in in a really good way, zealous mm. and zealous for the word, zealous for the gospel. And I've seen people just the question mark becomes elevated so they question everything that's what deconstruction mm. is that's what doubt is um, and it glorifies in it but and if they've not ever been able to ask questions then the glorification of doubt um becomes you know on a pedestal yeah, so the exclamation mark becomes the bad guy the question mark becomes the good oh, guy so you question everything but the exclamation mark we put the we put him in a box and when we put we put it away and we're not allowed to actually exclaim anything anymore nothing ever can be really mm. believed with certainty no house can be built on a rock because actually we want to um, keep shifting things and we think that we're going to have salvation because it's so wonderful and complex and beautiful and it isn't it's not beautiful it's cruel and it doesn't help as you say it's, it's not a good thing ultimately it, it ends in it ends in pastoral disaster um you speak to such people and they'll, they'll give you those responses like, oh, I was like you once. I used to just believe stuff. I believed it all. I believed everything I was told. I was a good little per a good little Christian. And it's not that simple to say that. I think the typecasting can happen both ways. So someone who believes stuff and lives out in faith is not someone who hasn't considered the doubt and the darkness and the questions and gone down the rabbit hole and thought about it. But it's actually maintaining 
uh, the mm. focus on the light, on who God is, what he's revealed to us, even though there are dark times, there are challenging circumstances in your life, you don't just kind of chuck chuck it all away because you faced a really hard situation. And that's where I hope the mm. church and a well-informed, you know, theologically astute and theologically robust church should be able to rally around and gather around in love and community around people who are going through tough times and who are going through dark, depressing spells or struggles in their faith. We don't want to pretend those things don't happen, but we don't want to nurse those in such a way that people would actually become worse off um, than, than mm. when they began. Almost like, you know, could, as an analogy, you could use the woman with the issue of blood who comes to Jesus, who'd spent all of her money on me- on medical care, which had made her worse. That's actually kind of what false teaching does someone's got a problem they've got challenges they've got kind of a condition because the church hurt them or some leader hurt them or some theological application hurt them in some way or they a relationship broke down something went wrong and the people they went to the doctors they went to made that made the problem worse and not better and that's why false teaching is such a, a big problem that's mm. why you know this kind of deconstructive glorification glorification of, de- of doubt and deconstruction mm. is a genuinely hazardous thing that needs to be yes. um, you know challenged I was it's funny. One of the lines I always raise a wry smile at in scripture, where it says of that woman that she had suffered under the care of many doctors for many years. <laughs> so, um, no, I think you're. I think you're right, and I think the other thing as well that strikes me with the deconstruction is is actually you can't be consistent because you always have to. You always have to find something that you ring fence and say, "Well, I can't go there," um, unless you say you go down the kind of Joshua Harris or Bar Cambolo would be mm. another. I think I'd. I think I think it was Bart that someone put me onto a piece with him recently, where he'd said that you know the first step, the the, the significant step for him going from evangelical to having now be be, human, be a humanist, um, it wasn't any of the myriad dominoes that came afterwards. It was the authority of Scripture. You know, mm. once he once mm. he gave way on that, the rest just followed. Yeah. And um, or conversely, there's a very famous atheist philosopher called A.J. Ayers who is the father of a school of philosophy known as logical positivism, which is the idea that only that which can be tested empirically is actually true. So if you can't measure it and test it in a laboratory, it isn't even truth. And towards the end of his life, he realized that actually the problem is the statement, only that which is empirically true is reliable, is itself not empirically testable. Mm. But A.J. Ayers, towards the end of his life, said something very interesting, actually. He said the, the, uh, the, the debunker, should be forced to wield the debunking sword mm. over his own cherished beliefs. In other words, if you want to sit there and, and debunk other people's stuff and, you know, mm. go, oh, yes, I'm ex-evangelical. Yeah. I used to think like you and I don't yeah. believe this anymore. So go, okay, what are the things that you hold dear? Mm. Mm. And actually, yes, another one story that reminds me, you know, it's late night, so I keep thinking of other stories. Um, I remember t- there's, a, there's, a, there's a story that Tim Keller tells in one of his books that, um, that I, I think I, get, I won't get all the details Right, but I'll get the broad outline that when you know when Keller was a young man, you know he played with liberal things for a bit. He wrestled with his faith, and he described when he was at college, he tells the story of he had you know people busy de- debunking things and saying that everything was relative and uh, you know all this kind of postmodern stuff. And so he describes how one class when he was in his twenties, the penny suddenly dropped. He raised his hand and he went, um, "Can I just start clarify? If everything is relative, presumably justice is too." Mm. To which he was told, "Oh no, don't be stupid." And he said, that was the moment to which I realized, hang on, there's a conjuring trick going on yeah. Yeah. here. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the thing. Mm. Uh, the you emperor's know, new clothes thing. Yeah. The emperor's new, new clothes yeah. and going that actually everyone, everyone ultimately is going to try and find solid ground. Everyone's going to have something they, 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 they take a stand on. And it's very easy to sort of, you know, as you say, you know, walk away from the evangelical fold 
play the game of I'm so sophisticated, but you don't look down and see what you're standing on. Um, yeah, and exactly ultimately, right. Christ is the only foundation that that I think does hold anything else. If you start questioning everything, mm. then that doubt becomes a universal asset. Yeah. No, that's absolutely right. I, I know that we've, we've got to, and Mrs. Bannister will be knocking on the door. She will because it's ten o'clock, and I promised her would you to would you <laughs> to sit down and watch an episode of The Chosen. So, uh, oh, there you are. Well, just one one final point. I one know final you, thought. You, you, one d- final and thought, that, and that it's just that that there are many people for whom remaining pseudo evangelical or evangelical sounding is good for business and that's a thing to be aware of so when you're kind of thinking right who hmm. who do i want to follow who do i want to listen to sometimes i like to and you do the same i notice as well it's good we, you need to push people to the logical conclusion of their belief sometimes because sometimes people haven't realized they actually have stepped off as you say stepped off the rock they don't believe in the authority of scripture really when it comes down to it, when it comes down to a time when when scripture when they're wrestling with scripture and they want to win that wrestle and they won't allow scripture to win over them uh, in that sense and so the danger is when you jump off that properly when you really jump off that cliff and say i'm no longer believing in the authority of scripture you can't make money out of christianity anymore because it doesn't really actually work so there are people who actually are genuinely charlatans or there's some people who are probably just um not willing to go the full way mm. they're not willing to sin boldly in, in that luther sense and <laughs> um, they're, they're 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 wanting they're wanting to say right can i still have the bible and can i still be an evangelical or call myself evangelical but ultimately um move away in all these other way all these other you know in, in these in these other mm. like doctrinal areas or moral ethical areas can i just shift ground on this um and and remain evangelical and and we have to kind of continue to go well I don't know. I don't think you can. Um, I think there are things that will naturally follow, and it might take ten years for you to realise. And I just, I've, you know, I've not been around quite as long as you yet. Thank you, but, for that. but you know, thank you. I, I've seen enough train wrecks to see that yeah. this will happen. So I'm quite confident. I don't. I feel, it feels like you know, you can sometimes come across as you say. It's important to not be self righteous. We don't want to act like we have all the answers. But um, I think when you see enough of these these examples happening, time after time after time. And it takes them years to realize you're trying to say, look, this is where you're going to end up. I don't want to say it will always happen exactly like this, but there are trajectories here. When you step off of that platform, when you step off of, of the, the rock, it's going to go hmm. only go one way. And it's, it's going to be hard unless you submit to scripture hmm. in a, and really go go all the way down. It's, you're going to struggle. Absolutely. And I seem to recall somebody important said something about building one's house on the rock Indeed. and not on the sand kind of thing. And what a, what a good place to... Uh, it wasn't Alexander the Coppersmith, was it? I don't think. It wasn't Alexander the, the Coppersmith, nor was it Rob Bell. I think it possibly might have been <laughs> it might have been Jesus. But um no, I think that's a good words to end with. Actually, it also reminds me as well, actually, as we close, that you know, the old um the old adage that those who um those who fail to learn the lessons of history are bound to repeat them. Because mm. of course, this happens historically. People come along and go, just a moment, I wonder if mm. you know, so so yeah, we, you know, the, the current crop of, of, of folks, you know, this has been going on before. There've been Christians in history who've trod this path. You know, you think back to the sort of battles the church fathers had to mm. had to face over mm. Christological mm. truth. There's people like Arius and others came along, well, well, yeah, I wonder here. And of course, mm. you know, being cheeky, right back to the garden itself, where um Absolutely. You know, Satan didn't say, oh, it's all a of rubbish. He went, yeah, has, has God has God already said? Mm. I'm sure you said in the previous episode mm. that Satan was the first theologian. I'm Absolutely. sure I think you First biblical scholar, that's right. First biblical first scholar. Biblical. And you're right, he and, doesn't doubt uh, God. He doesn't come and say, God isn't real. Or he doesn't say, God's a complete liar. He says, "Does God? did God really say? And that's the key, is exactly as you say. He, he does, he's subtle. Yes. Yeah. Well, on that note, we don't do subtle. So We don't. 
We don't do and subtle, so as ever. Your, not, can you do the disco lights for me? One more I shall. As, as we as we fade as out, we fade. although you won't enjoy this at home, you can just imagine. Uh, what I've got Andy here. Bannister. Here's, here's the disco shed. lights in a wooden shed with flashing what lights. That's how on. you know a good theologian, right there. That's how you know a good theologian. They can theologian, sit in the shed with disco lights on in the evening. Exactly. Um, that's exactly that's good. it. Excellent. Well, I hope that it's been a helpful episode for you. And by all means, keep uh, getting in touch with us and having a chat with us and uh, recommending uh, topics for future episodes, of course. We're always keen to hear from our listeners and, of course, yeah. keen to be supported by them and liked and shared all those normal podcasty things. Um, I've been Aaron Edwards. This has been Andy Bannister. I have we've, indeed. We've been part of the gaps. And until next time, good night. God bless. Goodbye. Farewell. <laughs>